HVAC 360, episode number eight. My interview with Gordon Holness, ASHRAE president, 2009-2010. Welcome to another episode of HVAC 360. I'm your host, Matt Nelson. This week, I had the great opportunity to catch up with the ASHRAE president, Gordon Holness. Gordon's the uh, president of American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers. Uh, ASHRAE does a great job in developing standards around the country, and I know that uh, during that, throughout this interview, you'll get an opportunity to kind of uh, understand a little bit about what, uh, what they do, uh, some of the new things that are coming out with, and a little bit of background in history um, as far as some of the other standards. So uh, I won't say too much, and uh, we'll get on with the interview with Gordon Holness. Hi, I'm here talking with Gordon Holness, who is the 2009-2010 president of the American Society of Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning Engineers, also known as ASHRAE. How are you doing, Gordon? I'm doing just fine. Good to see you this morning. Well, thanks for taking your time out of your busy schedule to take a, take a moment and talk with us. So can you describe to me what, what really the purpose of ASHRAE is? Uh, ASHRAE is a society that has an overall mission to advance the arts and sciences of heating, refrigeration, and air conditioning engineering for the benefit of mankind and to promote a sustainable world. And today, the, the big emphasis is on green buildings and sustainable buildings so that we have a place for our, for our future, for our children's future. So what do, you, what do you think most people don't know about ASHRAE? They don't fundamentally know who ASHRAE is or what we do. Um, because we are, if you like, the quiet society that's behind the technology that provides the comfort conditions in their homes and their offices. Um, we're, not, we're not out there as engineers sort of promoting ourselves. We're out there really just uh, developing the, the technology to improve energy efficiency and, and, and comfort conditions in buildings. So, I mean, that would be the, the primary difference between us and other organizations, you think? Uh, we don't market ourselves very well. That's probably one of our greatest um, faults. Um, I think we do an incredible job in developing the codes and standards that go into into building development. You, you cannot build a building in the United States today without following one of ASHRAE's standards, whether it's uh, standard 90.1, dealing with the energy efficiency of buildings, or whether it's standard 62.1, dealing with uh, indoor air quality. Um, all those uh, are built into the uh, building codes. We sort of take those for granted, but ASHRAE is constantly developing and improving those uh, to improve the environment. So not, not only has ASHRAE developed a, a number of codes um, or standards that have been turned into codes, uh, they also have uh, certification programs now. That's, that's, that's something that's been rather recent in the last uh, uh, couple of years. Uh, that is absolutely true. Uh, we've always had a very good range of educational programs for our members and for people outside the industry. Um, and those educational programs are offered uh, anywhere from conventional seminars and, uh, and courses uh, to self-directed learning and even e-learning, which is on-demand uh, online uh, educational programs. But now we've expanded that further to provide certification, which is really um, validating the qualifications of people in various aspects of the industry today because we think that's important uh, as we move forward. So now, who, who typically, who are the members? I mean, ASHRAE is comprised of a, a different types of people. What, uh, what sort of uh, you know, walks of life belong to ASHRAE? Actually, we're, we're a very diversified organ- organization. I think people think of us as an organization of engineers, uh, but in point of fact, uh, consulting engineers uh, as such probably make up only about one-third of our overall membership. Uh, we have people from the, um, from the industry, uh, whether, that is, whether they are contractors, whether they are vendors, whether they are manufacturers' representatives in, in different fields. Um, we have a lot of people from manufacturing industries, um, great support from the, from the industry. A lot of educators, a lot of, a lot of schools and universities. Um, a lot of governmental uh, agencies uh, have members in our society. Um, 
just just a very diverse group actually now what about what about students how do students integrate into what ashray does well students are the lifeblood of of our of our society and i mean that both in terms of our society as ashray as well as uh, as the society overall um uh, they are the future and so we work very hard to uh encourage students uh to enter the engineering field and to enter specifically our field of hvc and our engineering and uh so we uh we have um probably about 4500 students uh, around the globe um and we encourage student branches and uh and work with the faculty to to as they encourage those students to enter our industry and that's mostly at the university level though though when you talk about students you talk about people uh you know attending college or university no actually we go much further than that um today we uh we very much um uh try and uh, talk to students in the high school level to get them to enter university into engineering programs uh, because there is a dearth of um of students that are entering engineering in the United States and we need to encourage more to do that. So it really starts at the high school level with some of our student activity programs and then moves on from there into following them through their university uh, programs um and encouraging them through scholarships and through uh through uh, competitions and other other activities to stay involved. So let's talk a little bit about uh being an ashray president what what is that i mean i guess what's the process of becoming an ashray president uh it's a combination of uh, of many years of involvement in the society you really have to know the how the society works as an organization i've been a member of ashray for 45 years um i've been active in society level activities for probably 28 years um So I've served through, through many of the committees, through many of the as chair of many of those, through the councils, and attending many of the technical committees that we have. It's a very diverse organization. Um, we have about 110 technical committees addressing many of the different aspects of our industry's uh, technology. We have uh, standards writing uh, groups and committees. Uh, probably about 95 of those at this point in time. as well as a basic structural organization um we probably have about 2500 active members who who participate at the society level in these committees and so you know working with them getting a feel for them so gives you the background if you like to represent that society as as you move forward uh, i came on to the board uh, about 8 years ago and served as a bo- on the board of directors as the director at large uh, for 3 years and then moved on to become a vice president and ultimately treasurer president elect and president mm-hmm. but it is that background that gives you that knowledge a base uh, to understand how we work how we work with other organizations how we work with government agencies um department of energy and others and um you you have to build up that in order to to properly represent the society you have to understand sort of how all these relationships do work so what what made you you know want to be president i guess what 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 made you choose this path of uh, of you know because it's obvi- obviously it's a it's a job that involves a lot of travel it's very stressful at times you know so i guess what you know why did you do it well that's an interesting question um i've been i say i've been involved in the society for a long time and the value to me in my career over those years has been the peer to peer relationships um it is no other industry in the world that i know of has that depth of expertise just available on tap to you so if if in my career for example i was designing a new thermal storage system for a major project i could go into that particular committee and just talk to people who are the experts in the world in that field and explain to them what i'm trying to do and they just freely share that type of information when you've gone through that for all those years and so sort of seen that type of uh, giving that type of support you also want to give back and uh, and so when uh, so winding down my my professional career um i really wanted to stay involved i wanted to sort of give back some of my knowledge some of my um things i've learned over the years uh, back to the society and back to our members and so uh, that that's really why i got got back involved so what everybody has a a presidential theme what what is your presidential theme Um I chose a presidential theme that is sustaining our future by rebuilding our past. 
because I do strongly believe that energy efficiency in existing buildings is our greatest opportunity for a sustainable future. If you look at, uh, at our industry and look at the built environment that's going on and look like 25 and 30 years ahead, um, we have to recognize that 75 to 80 percent of the buildings that will exist you know, 25 years from now exist today. And so if we can have a material impact in terms of comfort and, and energy efficiency and indoor air quality, is going to be by addressing the existing building stock. And so uh, that's why I chose my theme for this year. So what, I guess what, what do you hope to accomplish through your, uh, your presidency? Um, well, I hope to accomplish several things. Okay. Uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's, that's, that's a wide open question. Uh, we are a global society. Uh, we, are glo- we are growing uh, probably more rapidly outside the United States than we are I- even internally. And so um, part of my objective was to expand that, uh, that global reach because we can learn a lot from what the industry is doing around the globe. Technology is not always here in the United States. Uh, we can learn a lot from what Europe is doing under their European Building Performance Directive uh, to improve the indoor environment there. And so um, one, of my, one of my major goals was to expand our reach, expand our relationship with our associate societies. Um, we actually have about 52 associate societies, which are similar organizations to ourselves in different countries around the globe. And so uh, part of my intent was to expand that reach, expand those relationships, uh, and continue to develop um, those. The, um, the other thing, of course, I really wanted to do was to, was to um, carry my theme forward into a constructive long-range program for the society. And so we have built up uh, many resources as a result, um, new standards, new programs, um, so just new uh, guidelines and directions for the society that gives us an overall cohesive program for energy efficiency in existing buildings. So what, what do you find most, uh, uh, I guess, most difficult about your uh, post? Uh, probably the time constraints. Um, it, 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 is, it is more than a full-time job. I probably spend 55, 60 hours a week uh, doing that. Um, uh, just the challenges. They, they are not only the day-to-day ongoing activities that uh, occur in, in running what is really a business of about $20 million a year with 52,000 members, um, but also to reach out. Um, I'm on, constantly on the road um, traveling to our different uh, student branches, our, our chapters, uh, attending conferences, uh, as well as, say, traveling globally. And so the, 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 time, the time is probably the biggest challenge uh, that, that comes to you. But uh, I certainly have enjoyed it. Uh, I look forward to completing my year and, and then moving on from there. So during your presidency, I guess, what have been some of the happy surprises that, that you didn't really expect coming into it? What, what are some of the benefits and some of the things that, that you know, came along with the, the post that, that surprised you? Well, I've always, I've always understood the passion of ASHRAE members and, um, and how, how really involved and, and giving they are in this industry. Um, but you don't realize how widespread that is until you start traveling internationally. Um, ASHRAE, ASHRAE is a highly recognized and tremendously respected organization around the globe. And I guess the extent of that really sort of surprised me as I, as I toured around. Um, I expect to have to explain sort of who Ashray is and what we do. Uh, instead of that, they're, they're very much aware of, of us ourselves as an organization, about the leadership we provide in terms of the industry. Um, and so there is a tremendous uh, recognition and respect out there. So uh, that, that really was probably the, uh, the most pleasant surprise as I moved around. So what was, what was probably the most exotic place that you've, you've, you've seen in, in your travels? <laughs> <laughs> well, people think that, that, that traveling around is, is exotic, and it, and, um, and it can be. But um, when, you're tra- when you're traveling uh, for business, which, and this, this is what it is, it is a business, um, you find yourself uh, on incredibly tight, tight uh, time schedules. Um, and so you get to know airports very well, uh, not necessarily to know uh, communities very well. Um, I certainly enjoyed uh, Bangkok in Thailand. Um, that was that was very enjoyable. 
I, I certainly enjoyed the opportunity to see the Taj Mahal in, in India. Um, I, I've probably one of the, the nicest cities I visited was um, uh, Hong Kong. Um, just, a, just a very uh, incredibly intense uh, community and, uh, and very much leading in, in many respects in our industry. Uh, but fundamentally, I just love Europe. I mean, Europe uh, is is just uh, got that tremendous culture, that heritage that uh, is really unique. And so, the opportunity to travel through Europe, um, particularly to travel to places like uh, Rome and Berlin, uh, have been very enjoyable and rewarding. Now, your background is is rather unique. You uh, what were born and grew up in the United Kingdom. That's correct. And you you traveled to Canada and then the United States. But re- really, you've, you've practiced engineering on, in three different countries, um, you know, at least, I say. Yes, you know, at least you've based, you based yourself in yes. uh, three different countries. That's can, correct. Can you tell me a little bit about what, you know, is there, is there much difference in engineering, you know, between, between the different countries, you know, with codes and, and things like that, or is it something, you know, something different? Um, there is a commonality to engineering uh, around the globe. Um, no, the fundamentals e- exist. Um, probably one could argue that the uh, the codes are more rigid in uh, in Europe than they are uh, in North America. Um, we have we have a, a sort of much more open society uh, in the United States than we necessarily see in other places. Probably the biggest difference for me as a practicing engineer is, however, that um, in England and in Canada, I mostly work for mechanical electrical consulting engineers, um, whereas in the United States, I work for an architectural engineering integrated practice. And there's a big difference between the two. Um, when you work for, in, for independent uh, mechanical engineers, for example, you are hired by an architect to work with them. That's a different relationship than, than working with, with an integrated firm. And... There are, there are advantages both ways, um, but I certainly have the, enjoyed the opportunity to work in a firm the size that uh, I work for because it did give me access and opportunity to project types that otherwise could not occur. Mm-hmm. So what, what, what got you involved in engineering in the first place? I mean, you know, did you grow up wanting to be an engineer? What, what kind of steered you in that direction, I guess? Um, but that, that's one of those peculiarities of life, uh, just pure chance. Um, I graduated from high school uh, before I was 16, and uh, my family was not necessarily that well off, so I had to go out and earn a living. And so uh, in looking around, um, I found myself working for the local county council, Uh, and it turned out it was the architectural department, the engineering sub-department, and so, you know, it it gave me a job, Um, but very soon I found that it was a job that uh, I had a great interest in and uh, thought there was a great future in. Having done that, I decided I'd better get an education. And so uh, I moved from a small rural area in southern England up into London so I could go to, uh, to night school. And then for the following seven years, I went to night school um, while working for consulting engineers in London. Um, that's, that's how the whole thing started. It was really just by chance. But... Uh, a chance to find an industry I just love to work in, and uh, I've had a career that I have enjoyed as, as well as being able to make a good living. Yeah. So now in England, there, you know, I guess uh, you know, we have ASHRAE in in the United States. In England, they have what uh, the, the Chartered Institute of Building Science Engineers. Is that right? Building Services Engineers. Building Services Engineers. That is correct. Yes. Um, there are parallel organizations to ASHRAE, and. Um, I think uh, part of what I, I have enjoyed is that um, that we have developed these relationships between these organizations that, that work uh, very cooperatively together. Um, so, yeah, I, uh, I, I became a member of SIPSI um, as, as I grew up and worked in London and uh, so carried that membership across when I came into Canada. Uh, but that's where I found out, of course, that ASHRAE was the predominant um, Organization for our industry in North America, and so uh, that's when I became an ASHRAE member 45 years ago. So. Now, what uh, I guess 
I've, I uh, remember getting a uh, like a press release or something of that being some sort of reciprocity between Ashray and Sibsi. Um, is that anything that uh, you can uh, expound upon about that? I mean, what what are the you could have like a dual membership almost. Um, I don't know whether that's really the case. Um, the, the memberships are, are are separately, but we ha- the, actually there is an Ashray Sibsi group now that uh, that that our members in uh, in the United Kingdom uh, work very closely with Sibsi members and uh, and share joint meetings. Um, no, the engineering side is different. The, the England um, has what is called chartered societies, and the chartered societies are the equivalent of professional engineers. So while ASHRAE is an engineering society, our registration for, for engineering is separate through the National Society of Professional Engineers. In the United Kingdom, the Chartered Institute of Building Services Engineers is the professional society for that industry. Hmm. Now, I know that ASHRAE has, uh, if, if most people know anything about ASHRAE, they know about the, the series of books that ASHRAE uh, uh, produces. Yeah, the handbooks. The, yes. the handbooks, the yeah. fundamentals, mm-hmm. um, you know, applications, things like that. Um, now, I know SIBSI, actually, the one thing that, that, that surprised me when I was at the uh, uh, HR or the uh, Orlando meeting is that they actually had, uh, uh, in the bookstore, they had a set of SIBSI uh, handbooks as well. I thought I found that very, very interesting. That I mean, they were and they were pretty detailed all throughout. It's it's it was interesting to see that kind of correlation. That you know, I mean, they have their own set of you know handbooks that uh, um, you know govern anything from from maintenance and building operation to uh, uh, you know uh, engineering applications. Now that is correct. Actually, SIPSI, unlike many of the other uh, societies, similar societies around the globe. SIPSI uh, does have its own set of engineering handbooks that they have developed over the years, and, and they're very good. Um, so we share publications. Um, ASHRAE publications are, are posted and uh, sold in the SIPSI bookstore, and, and SIPSI uh, publications are sold in, in, in the ASHRAE bookstore. Um, and we do have some joint publications that we have done together. We've also had some joint uh, uh, statements. Uh, for example, we have a joint statement on climate change. Uh, that we've worked on together. So we have a great cooperative working relationship with them. Hmm. Now, as you've, you've uh, when you worked uh, for, uh, what, Albert Kahn in Associates in uh, Detroit, um, there was a number of award-winning projects. You've, you've, you've won a number of uh, ASHRAE Technology Awards for projects that you've, you've engineered. I guess, what, uh, what project can you uh, point to as, as one, of your, one of your favorite projects? Um, probably the, the lead project in my mind was the University of Michigan Hospital, um, not only because of its complexity, because of, but also because of its size. Um, it was designed uh, in the early 1980s. Um, uh, it was a project of about 1.1 million square feet, uh, including uh, both patient uh, areas as well as diagnostic and treatment areas. Uh, but as I said, a very complex program. And our target uh, in designing that was to make it um, just obviously uh, fundamentally uh, responsive to the patient environment, uh, but also energy efficient. And um, we, we set a target of, of, uh, of an energy efficiency level that uh, was essentially unheard of at that point in time. And uh, we're able to achieve that target. And so uh, I decided to enter it into the ASHRAE Technology Awards program and were fortunate enough to win not only at the local level, but all the way up to win first prize in the society for that. Now, as, as far as projects go in general, obviously you've, you've done a number of them over the years. What are, what are some of the things that, as an engineer, you can identify problems early on or uh, things that tend to make the project go, say, south a little bit, you know, that, that don't make it go so well. Is there anything in particular that, that you've seen projects like, you know, when this starts to happen, it's, it's you know, all of a sudden, you know, it, it, it is a little bit harder to, uh, to, to go through the engineering process? Um, the, the greatest problem I think we, we see in the industry uh, is, is a very simple one. And it is simply communication. Um, we we tend to uh, take the criteria from the owner and then sort of retreat into our uh, offices and, and and sort of design in a vacuum. 
and then turn around to the owner and say, here it is, and uh, we think this is what you want, and now let's go ahead and build it. Um, the most successful projects is, is A, when you have a knowledgeable owner, which helps, um, but B, when you have constant communication, open communication with the owner all the way through, so there are no surprises, um, no sort of unexpected uh, issues that come up. Um, communication is, I think, a real key element to a successful project all the way through. Now, when you talk to, um, you know, if you're giving advice to younger engineers, people just starting out, what, what you know, what, I guess what kind of advice might you give them, um, you know, as far as, you know, career-wise, as far as learning or, or some, some, you know, lessons learned that, that you could probably, you know, pass down to, pass down to them? Um, talk to your peers. Talk to talk to those with experience in the industry. The uh, this is an unusual industry. Um, everybody emphasizes, sort of, if you like, the technology, the engineering that goes into it. Um, but we talk about the arts and sciences of HVAC and our engineering because it is as much an art in terms of application of design as it is a, a science from the, from the pure engineering, the pure numbers aspect. Uh, having having deci- decided and calculated out what the heating or cooling load in a building is, is only the starting point. Um, from that point on, you've got to select a system that can respond to those loads, meet those loads, but also respond to an owner's needs and their occupancy of that building, their use of that building. Uh, and that's where the art comes in. And uh, so it's learning that art, learning that application uh, that I think uh, is really key to success. And the best way of doing that, as I said, is talking to those with that experience and, and those peers in the industry that, uh, that you respect. Now, what about people that, that you know, are looking for you know, a, you know, a path, a career path, um, whether they be in, you know, in, in college or, or otherwise? How would, what's the best way to go about learning about HVAC? I mean, what, what advice could you give them about, okay, here's a starting point, you know, you know possibly, you know, look at these two, you know, courses or, um, you know, volunteer. Or, you know, what, I guess, what, uh, what sort of advice would you have people trying to break into the industry, so to speak? Find a mentor. Um, people in our industry are, are great sharers of, of knowledge and information, and um, you, you really, uh, I mean, that's one of the reasons why we have student branches and, uh, and why we have our chapters. It is to provide a sort of a resource to young people coming into the industry, and we need to, we need to welcome them in. Um, but you need to find people who, ha- who have that experience, who have that knowledge, and can provide that guidance. Mentorship is, is I think, is probably as an important piece of the pie as anything. Now, let's switch gears there a little bit. Obviously, uh, green is a big, big topic. Uh, being energy efficient, um, that's, you know, ASHRAE's big push uh, in, in the whole green movement. Um, I think that would be one of our focal points is, is energy efficiency. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, how ASHRAE is... Uh, you know, responding to that, the, the green movement, how it's integrated into, uh, you know, the whole whole process. Uh, well, ASHRAE's focus um, has always been HVAC in our systems and really sort of establishing the in- indoor environment uh, in terms of how a building works, how it performs, how it meets the consumer's needs. But today we had to recognize that... Um, we had to deal with total building systems. Uh, it's not enough simply to deal with the, the mechanics, if you like, of, of uh, equipment. We need to deal with the building as a whole. And so we, we've come to realize that building orientation, for example, has a big impact in terms of solar load on the one hand and the opportunities for daylighting on the other. And so integrated building design, total system design, has become sort of fundamental to, to how we move forward. Um, the whole green and sustainable building movement is, um, if you like, a, a basic change in, in American culture. Um, we have, unfortunately, over the years become a, um, a rather wasteful society, a, a sort of rather throwaway society. So, uh, for example, if you look at a construction site, the amount of waste material on a construction site is phenomenal, and, it, and it's unnecessary. If we plan right uh, and design right, and go through the whole construction process correctly, 
we can reduce all of that waste. We can reduce the impact on the environment we have in simply the construction of buildings. And so the whole basis of uh, sustainability uh, just starts fundamentally with the building as a whole and then goes through the entire program of design, construction, and operation. Now, you've been one of, I guess, one of those pieces in, uh, you know, ability to reduce waste is uh, doing, you know, BIM modeling, building information modeling. And you've been, you've been a, a key player in, in ASHRAE's as far as developing that goes, can you talk a little bit about what building information modeling is and what, it, you know, what, what benefits it can have? Well, this industry started with, with simple drawings, uh, pencil on, uh, on, uh, on, on linen, even ink on linen if you go back far enough. Um, but, but basic drawings are, are in themselves fundamentally dumb documents. They're simply illustrations of, of a design. When you get into building information modeling, you're actually building intelligence into those drawings and specifications. Uh, When you do that, every single line you draw has a meaning, has an impact. And so a line, instead of simply being that that sort of scribble on a a piece of paper, um, that might be a two-inch copper pipe. And you can pull the intelligence into that two-inch copper pipe and say it's a type M copper pipe, and it's carrying chill water at 45 degrees and so many gallons a minute. Uh, there's an incredible opportunity in the building information model to build those levels of intelligence in that not only carries through the whole design process, but will get carried through into the, the construction process, into material ordering and supply, all the way into actual construction and into operation of the building. So that to later on, maybe 20 years down the road, when you have to replace a piece of equipment, you can go back to that building information model and the intelligence for that piece of equipment resides there and you can simply use that as basis of reordering. So it's a tremendous capability that this that this offers. So, as far as the industry goes, how how is uh, building information modeling kind of getting integrated? I mean, is it is it a slow process? Is it how do you how do you see it advancing? Uh, it has been much slower than I had hoped, to be frank. Um, uh, it is it is complex. Um, and we need uh, easier-to-use tools than have existed along the way. Now, our company actually started using building information modeling as early as 1985-86 and had done so very successfully on very large projects. Um, But it is complicated. It does take take, uh, sophisticated software. It does take training and learning of your operators. It even takes training in terms of users. And you know, one of the difficulties is, um, is how, how rapidly that software can be developed to be more user-friendly, um, and that's, that's the biggest challenge. But I think the opportunities for that uh, are incredible. Um, the other aspect of it, of course, is that we need to recognize that um, our industry is very fragmented. Uh, most design offices, whether they're architectural or engineering, are actually quite small. Uh, it's not unusual for an architectural office to be three to five people. And for engineering office to maybe maybe five to ten people, um, it's very difficult for those very small offices to uh, be be able to handle um, the complex software for uh, for BIM modeling. Uh, as against uh, larger offices, I was fortunate enough to work in an office that um, ended up when I retired of having 400 people. Um, so you had a lot of resources in there, not only in terms of the engineering capability, but also in terms of computer technology that otherwise you couldn't have in a smaller office. Talking about energy efficiency, the ultimate goal of energy efficiency is, is really to have the, the net zero building, what's called the net zero building. How is that going? Um, it's going very well. Um, net zero buildings, of course, are those that on an annual basis use no more energy from the utility grid than they put back into that grid through renewable energy sources. Um, But the very first step along the way is to make the building itself as energy efficient as possible before you even start looking at putting in renewable energy sources, whether that be thermal, uh, solar thermal, solar photovoltaic, or wind. Um, And that's the challenge. How do you do that? And in the past, we might have viewed that as being simply making the HVACNR equipment highly efficient. But it's much, much more than that today. You have to make the total building system as a whole energy efficient. That means the building envelope, the fenestration systems, uh, the insulation levels, the lighting, the ventilation, as well as the HVACNR systems. It's a collective whole 
that can get you to the point where you need to be. Now, as far as, as, as obviously, when you make something, you know, you're tweaking it, you know, equipment that exists today, you're making it more and more efficient. At some point, you have to stop and say, you know what, maybe there's a better way to do this altogether. And not instead of trying to improve a, a piece or a component or a system, to stop and say, okay, you know, there, there's a different way of doing that. I mean, is, is there, um, I guess, information out there of, of, of different, you know, people trying to, you know, change how we look at heating and cooling a building? Uh, yes, there, yes, there are. I mean, I think you're seeing sort of really big changes in the selection of systems. Having, having achieved a, 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 a high efficient building envelope, having maximized the amount of daylighting you can get in, the control of lighting systems, now you start looking at what is the right system to apply to that that is as energy efficient as possible. We used to think of those in terms of um, the traditional variable air volumes or constant volume reheat systems. Um, but air itself is not necessarily a, an efficient transporter of energy not compared to water or refrigerant. And so you're seeing a, a movement towards radiant heating and, and radiant cooling systems and dedicated outdoor air systems, uh, small, smaller, more componentry systems that are, that are much more efficient in themselves. Uh, by the way, they're also easier to operate and maintain. Now, is there you know, a lot of this comes, you know, when, we're, when we talk about net zero, um, you know, people are like, you know what, we're going to stick with the status quo unless the government s- starts to change its policy and start mandating some of these things. I mean, is that is that something that's going to be, you know, uh, coming up in the future? I mean, obviously we're not, you know, uh, political and all, but it's it's what what do you see envision, uh, uh, you know, coming down the pipe? Well, we we are we are after all a um, a capitalist society, and I, and I mean that in the nicest way. Um, we're driven by the fundamentals of economics uh, and how we live our lives and, and how we do business. Uh, everything has a value and a relativity to it. Um, we enjoy in the United States relatively cheap energy. Um, we buy gasoline at $3 a gallon and complain about the cost. In Europe, they pay $9 a gallon. Um, similarly, our gas and electricity bills uh, in the United States are much lower than they are in Europe by factors of three and a half or four to one. And so having enjoyed that cheap level of energy, uh, it's been sort of easy to sort of just freely use it and, and not worry about the, the efficiency or the cost. Well, today we have to worry about it for two reasons. One, um, the availability of energy is, is diminishing, and so we can expect to see um, restrictions in regard to energy availability, which is security in itself. Uh, and two, I think we have the realization that our use of that energy does result in, in high levels of greenhouse gas emissions, particularly CO2, going into our atmosphere, which is in itself going to, on a long-term basis, affect our lives. Now, as far as uh, Europe being like more advanced than us, because I mean, obviously they have, they have different policies in place and, and the costs are, are such that it really kind of forces them into you know, being more energy efficient, how are they dealing with net zero? Um, they have a very aggressive uh, program on both new and existing buildings. Um, uh, under the European Building Performance Directive, they are, they are making significant inroads to improve existing building performance. Um, there's a lot of government incentives out there for that purpose. It's not unusual uh, in many of the countries that are part of the Performance Directive uh, for the government to pay up to 50% of the cost of retrofit of their existing building stock. Uh, even on a local basis, you may get local communities spending another 30%, so the building owners only spend 20%. That's a tremendous incentive. And so you're seeing sort of radical changes um, there, driven, as you said, by high energy costs and also by limited availability. Um, on new buildings, uh, they've set the target of all new residential buildings being net zero by the year 2016. That's only six years from now and for all new commercial buildings to be uh, net zero by 2019. Those are very aggressive schedules. And so uh, we're all working together, looking at the technology to achieve those types of goals. Now, where, where are some of those resources that, that people can, you know, if they're, they're looking at, you know, what's being done already so they're not, you know, reinventing the wheel? What, what's, what are some of the, the best uh, sources of information for that? 
Um, you'll see a lot of that in terms of guidelines that are now being developed, uh, and actually is working hard on a series of guidelines, including the Advanced Energy Design Guide series. Uh, but it's also uh, in terms of the conferences that we hold around the globe. Uh, not only, uh, we as an industry, not just ASHRAE. Um, there, is a, there is a tremendous amount of information being shared out, out there um, uh, throughout uh, Europe and, and, and elsewhere. It's one of the reasons why I travel a great deal is, is attending these conferences and, and learning what is happening uh, in these countries, what technologies are, are being uh, successful um, and some that are not necessarily successful. Uh, it's learning from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and there is, there is a tremendous amount of information available. Now, when we talk about energy efficiency, it's in the lead process. A lot, a lot of emphasis, you know, with uh, new buildings have been in place with you know lead or or different energy efficiency standards, whether it be ninety point one. Um, but it was it was interesting to hear you speak about the uh, existing building stock, and that that really, when you talk about you know, developing renewable energy. When you talk about you know improving the the new buildings that are being built, it really you know when it comes to energy usage and carbon footprint, your your biggest target out there that people may not be looking at is the existing building stock that exists in the United States. It is indeed. Um, if you look at where the construction dollars go, only two percent of construction dollars actually go into new building projects. Eighty-six percent of construction dollars. Uh, go into the retrofit of existing buildings. Um, as I mentioned earlier, 75 to 80 percent of all buildings that will exist 25 years from now exist today. Um, that is where the greatest opportunity is. It is also the greatest challenge. Um, it's much more um, challenging, if you like, uh, and, and sort of idealistic to start with a brand new building and sort of build up those systems from scratch uh, to reach the goals. It's, it's much harder when you start with existing buildings and look at retrofitting those. Um, harder from the standpoint of not only the technology, uh, but also the economics and also the incentives from a building owner's standpoint. It's a, change, it's a change in mindset. It's a change in viewpoint as to where we're going. Now, when you talk about uh, some of the ASHRAE standards that, that people know best, 90.1 you know, energy efficiency has is, is, is got to be on the top of the list. Um, there are different, uh, you know, it's, it's released... Um, I think there's uh, a number of releases that are that are improvements on the previous one. Uh, the last two being, you know, 2004 and 2007. Um, I found it interesting, and when we talk about you know stimulus money that's being um, pushed forth, I know that there was a, a slide in your presentation that that talked about where people are at now. But can you talk about a little bit about how the stimulus money is is, is affecting what people are doing for energy standards? Well, 90.1 was first developed in 1975, following the Arab oil embargo and energy crisis at that time. And that is a standard that is the the fundamental basis of most of our energy uh, codes in the United States. It's a standard that is uh, on a constant uh, development. Um, We issue a denim to that standard on a regular basis. We also follow the code cycles, uh, the the building code uh, cycles in terms of their updates. And so fundamentally, we, we revise standard 90.1 and reissue it on a three-year cycle basis. Um, so you would have seen one in, in 2001 and in 2004, 2007, and we're upcoming now with the next issue, which is coming out in 2010. It's interesting that the, um, the Department of Energy um, required that all states... Um, uh, in, by the, uh, it was the Energy Policy Act of 2005, EPAC 2005, that required all states to adopt ASHRAE Standard 90.1 uh, 1999 or later. Um, and yet, uh, even today, there are many states that haven't got to that point. Um, states have a, a great deal of independency uh, from federal requirements. And so... Some of them have been much slower to update their building codes than others. But the building stimulus uh, monies that have come out uh, as a result of the economic crisis we have just been through are making a big difference. Uh, One of the requirements under the stimulus funding that goes to the states is that they update their building codes to be much more energy efficient, in fact, to adopt not less than actually 90.1-2007. Every single state in the union um, has accepted stimulus money. 
And so they now have an eight-year period of time to update their building codes and demonstrate 90% compliance um, as a result of that acceptance. So we, we, we expect to see uh, a great deal of uniformity around the country as a result. Now, when we talk about some of the some of the newer standards that are similar to ninety point one, but but serve a different purpose, one eighty nine point one is uh, one of the newer standards that just has just been um, released. Can you describe what what one eighty nine point one is? Yes, this is a this is a game changer in the industry. This is the world's first high performance green building standard in, intended for code adoption. Uh, it is a comprehensive standard. That, that addresses all aspects of building design, construction, and operation. Uh, so it's very unique in that, in that uh, regard. Uh, it's taken three and a half years to develop. Uh, we issued it uh, for publication at the very beginning of this year. Uh, but it addresses uh, building siting, uh, building orientation, building envelope uh, design, insulation levels, uh, even fenestration levels as, re- as they relate to daylighting. Uh, it addresses water conservation, which is becoming an even bigger issue today in the United States. It addresses indoor air quality, uh, lighting systems, as well as energy systems. So it's, it's, a, it's a really comprehensive standard that actually mirrors much of the elements that you might see in the USGBC uh, LEED rating system. Um, and that's by design. Uh, USGBC has been our partner in developing that standard, so we work very closely together. Uh, they have recognized that uh, in order to give uh, the lead rating system technical validity, they needed more sort of uh, mandates behind that. And so the purpose of ASHRAE 189.1, amongst other things, is to provide the underlying uh, guidelines and prerequisites for uh, the lead rating system. But there's a tremendous amount of interest uh, uh, out there in the different administrations and jurisdictions in the United States. We've actually had inquiries from probably about 1,400 code jurisdictions who are interested in adopting uh, a green building code. So uh, this has been a very, very important standard in development. Now, you have uh, just actually released information about your something that's going on with the uh, International Code Council, the ICC. Yes, um, that's, be, I think, been an exciting development. Um, the International Code Council is the predominant code administration body in the United States. I think they service about 85 to maybe even as high as 90% of all code jurisdictions in the United States. Um, And they were in the process of starting to develop the International Green Construction Code um, as as a requirement for green buildings. Uh, And when uh, when they found out we were issuing Santa 189.1 and we found out they were developing the IGCC, we decided it was uh, much more preferable for the industry for us to work collectively together. And so uh, we've, we have reached an agreement that will be announced on March the 15th um, that the IGCC, when it is issued, will contain a standard 189.1 uh, in its totality uh, as an informative appendix to the Green Code. Uh, but there will also be technical information from standard 189.1 included inside the code, uh, and 189.1 will be an alternative path of compliance, an option for code jurisdictions to use in adopting a green code in the United States. Now, when we talk about energy efficiency, I know that uh, um, 90.1 has been said is, is, is the code minimum. Is the, that should be you know, the, 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 the least you could get away with. Uh, if you're designing a building, that's that's the bare minimum, and most people think that that's that's an improvement, but it's really just just a, a code minimum. That is uh, correct of energy efficiency. What if you talk about 189.1? What what kind of increase are you looking at as far as uh, you know performance goes? Um, well, energy is only one component of standard 189.1, and it is meant to lead the industry. It is meant to be a higher standard, a high performance standard. Uh, our estimates are that standard 189.1, as currently issued, is about 32% more energy efficient than standard 90.1 2007. So it is the next step up. And our intent is to continue to improve standard 189.1 as we move forward uh, along a path towards net zero, 
so that uh, we hope that uh, Santa Juanita 9.1 will provide net zero energy uh, design guidance and requirements uh, by the year 2030. So all the, the 90.1, the 189, they're all kind of raising the bar as we go forward um, in years. Uh, that is correct. Uh, and, that, and that's not only uh, from the standpoint of uh, good engineering practice and efficiency overall, but also responsive to new federal re- legislation that is coming down the track. Uh, the uh, current acts that are going through the, the House and the Senate in our Congress um, the, the Waxman-Markey Act, for example, uh, would require all new commercial buildings and all new residential buildings to be 30% more energy efficient by the year 2010. That's right now, if that act passes, uh, and be uh, 50% more energy efficient by the year 2016. Uh, those are aggressive targets, and uh, we, we aim to be the society that provides that technical guidance to achieve those goals. Now, for, for owners that have a, an existing building right now, I know ASHRAE has developed a uh, building labeling program that uh, uh, kind of would, you know, allow them to see how their building's rated. And I guess, how does, how does the building labeling program kind of um, integrate into what most people, Energy Star is a, is a big kind of rating system right now and the lead rating system. How do those three kind of compare well, one of the fundamental goals of the ASHRAE Building Energy Labeling Program is just to provide building owners with an understanding of how their building is actually performing. I mean, it's very hard to improve what you're not measuring, and um, uh, we, d- we don't have those, those, those measurements uh, clearly available uh, today. Um, and when you go and buy a car, uh, you get a label on the side of the car that says 21 miles to the gallon city, no, 27 miles to the gallon highway. We aim to provide the same type of overall guidance in terms of energy performance uh, as they relate to buildings. Now, there are differences uh, between LEED on the one hand and Energy Star and, an, and the ASHRAE Building Energy Program. Uh, LEED is a point rating system. It is a rating system in terms of how the building is actually designed, uh, but it does not provide specific numbers in terms of building performance in, in, in terms that the building owner can necessarily understand. Uh, so whether we use terms like BTUs per square foot per year or kilowatt hours per square foot per year, um, that level of energy intensity use based upon actual metered data provides a direct input to the owner in terms of, of how their building is performing. But more importantly than that, we provide a comparison of that to similar buildings in the same climate zone. So it is a measure of comparison so that you know whether your building is performing well maybe achieving an A level of performance, or performing poorly, maybe an E or maybe even an F in terms of of performing. So it's a scale rating system that uh, provides them a direct guidance uh, in terms of actual performance. Uh, The difference, again, between that and Energy Star, Energy Star in itself is a rating that you get whether you are in the top 25 percentile performance uh, of buildings uh, in that in that particular field. But it does not give you the specific, and again, the specific numbers in terms of actual energy intensity use uh, that, that provides the owner with the guidance of, of comparison and the means to improve the performance of their buildings. So the background behind the labeling program also provides guidance in terms of step-by-step incremental changes the owner can make to improve building performance. So you have, uh, and as I understand it, there's kind of two different um, numbers, well, not numbers, but grades that you would get. You get one that is, is the, this is how the building is, was designed, and here's how the building is, is operating. That's correct. It's a two-part label. Uh, the first label is, as you mentioned, the as design, and we call it the asset rating of the building. It is what, it is what the building is potentially capable of in terms of overall energy efficiency and performance. And then there's the reality, the actual in-operation rating, and that is based upon actual metered data. And so now you have a comparison between what the building is capable of on the one hand and what is actually performing on and the other. And the background data and information that we provide as part of the labeling program is how to get back to what the overall goals and design intent was, how to improve the efficiency of the building to get to where 
you really you really need to be. So what I guess what stage of the process is the the labeling program at? Um, you have test uh, uh, test programs going on now. Yes, actually, we are in the pilot phase of the program. We rolled the program out uh, in uh, in Louisville last summer. And in fact, we labeled the ASHRAE headquarters building as the first building in in that program. Uh, we're now in the full pilot phase. We have worked with uh, the real estate industry, with organizations like Heinz and C.B. Richard Ellis. We've also worked with different city administrations. And we have chosen 25 buildings um, that range from about 25,000 square feet to as high as 750,000 square feet. And we're putting those buildings through the pilot program so we can flush out all of the issues in terms of data gathering, in terms of how information flows, in terms of the qualifications of energy auditors and assessors, all of those different issues so that by the time we roll the program out fully uh, to the industry, which will probably occur later in 2010, we know all the issues and parameters that we need. Now, do you do you anticipate, and and I, you know, just knowing that, you know, it, it could happen like this. Do you anticipate ever the asset um, assessment, uh, the the designed grade, is going to be lower than the building operating grade? I mean, is that is that you, could you envision that happening at all? Uh, it would be wonderful if that did happen, but unfortunately, that's not normally the circumstance. Um, we have typically seen actual building performance um, significantly lower than design intent. Um, some of that is just due to um, of incorrect sort of finalization and setting of the, of the operations of, those, of the buildings and the systems. Um, but part of it uh, is just the occupancy of the buildings. Uh, the occupants have tremendous uh, impact in terms of, of how efficiently the building actually works. If you look today at, uh, at energy loads in buildings, we're making the envelope, we're making the building itself, we're making the lighting systems and the HVAC systems more and more efficient. What we have little control over is the actual use of that building in terms of, of the occupants, particularly in regard to data processing systems, uh, laptop computers, and the like. Uh, if people will just leave their laptop computers running when they walk away from their workstation, uh, that's a continuous load on the building, not only in terms of draw for the use of energy in the laptop, but also in terms of the heat release requiring cooling from the building systems. And so it's an educational process. Um, we can put in occupancy sensors. We can put in um, demand control ventilation systems. We can do a lot of technology that will improve that. But it still comes down to fundamentally to, uh, to, the, to the recognition, to the, the, the fundamental understanding of the occupants of the building of their part in this in this um, whole process. So we also aim to increase uh, occupant awareness um, by providing sort of visual indicators in terms of energy use in buildings uh, and the like. It's kind of like a, a dashboard on their building automation system. Absolutely. That's exactly what we're looking to do. Now, I guess one of the components that I've seen is, is been a, a, a detriment to the uh, you know the designed operation of a building is the operation, uh, the, the maintenance staff, the, the people who actually operate the building operators. What what is ASHRAE doing to kind of help those people, you know, understand uh, you know understand the systems better? Or um, yeah, that that is actually fundamental. Um, as much as the occupants are important, uh, the operation and maintenance staff is is really critical. Uh, if you look at the fundamental role of a building operator, you might think it is to make sure the systems are keep keep running efficiently and 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 and, uh, and operating the way they were designed. That really is not the case. The fundamental role of a, of a building operator really turns out to be to maintain o- occupant satisfaction. If you can reduce the number of complaints of the building occupants, I'm too hot, I'm too cold, it's drafty in here, and the like, uh, then he's going to keep his building owner happy as well. Uh, and so when you do that, there's a tendency for the operators to sort of tweak the systems and to readjust the systems to try and sort of maintain that level of, of, uh, of comfort. And pretty, pretty soon the building is no longer running the way it was intended. And so our goal is to provide uh, training and education uh, to, to uh, building operators. Uh, we're developing training programs uh, for that purpose. We're also uh, raising uh, the awareness of building owners. We're working with organizations like BOMA and IFMA uh, to, to increase uh, their 
understanding of the importance of well-trained building, uh, building operators are if in the successful performance of their buildings. Now, mentioning BOMA and IFMO, how are they, uh, I guess, where are they in the whole process of, of this green movement? Well, certainly I think um, there's a greater understanding and realization on their part that uh, green and sustainable buildings uh, do represent an increased value in the industry. Uh, if you ask them uh, and ask their members uh, what the real impact is, if they can demonstrate that that is a, a high-performing green building, it really puts a premium and value on that building of maybe 5 to 7% over and above other buildings, similar buildings around them. Um, so th 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 that realization has already occurred. What we have to do as the next step is to get them to be prepared to invest in buildings so they can achieve that goal. Uh, and that, that's, a, that's a change in philosophy. We are a very capital-driven society. We are a very first-cost-driven society. And we need to move that, uh, that psyche from there to an overall realization that life cycle cost is much more important overall. Uh, that, and that's a change in, 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 in some fundamental business practice and change in, in culture, if you like, that we need, need to go through. Excellent. Well, you know, I guess what, um, the, what can we expect in, from ASHRAE in the, 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 the near future? What, what are some of the, the things that, that, you know, maybe haven't been, uh, you know, released or, or that we can, we can expect to, to see um, in the near future? Um, just an expansion of all of the training tools and resources that we provide to the industry, uh, providing new training programs and new certification programs on building commissioning. Uh, as, as an important uh, ongoing element uh, in terms of system performance. Uh, we are certainly on a path towards net zero energy buildings. And so uh, we're holding conferences around the globe, uh, learning what is working better and what, is, what, is, what can be expected, learning what tools work correctly. Um, you're going to see a much, uh, much uh, stronger interest in heat pump technology as a way to improve overall system performance and energy efficiency. Um, so it's really, it's really a question of developing uh, greater resources and tools uh, and, uh, and training for our members and for the industry overall. Any closing thoughts that you have? Uh, this has been a, a wonderful opportunity for me to serve as, uh, as president of ASHRAE and, uh, and, to, and to travel the globe and see what's going on. Um, a tremendous learning experience and a tremendous opportunity to share my experience. And so uh, I look forward to completing my, uh, my term as president. I look forward to continuing to work with the society as we contribute to the overall good uh, of, of our industry and, uh, and aim for the overall sustainable future that we need. Excellent. Well, thanks for taking the time with, uh, uh, to talk with us and, uh, about uh, what you do and what ASHRAE is. My pleasure indeed. Thank you. All right. I hope everybody enjoyed the uh, the full interview with Gordon. Um, I would like to thank Gordon personally because it's been uh, a real great great pleasure uh, to be able to talk with him um, for the time I did. And uh, you know, it was it was it was an ordeal. I mean, I'm relatively new at this, and you can tell. You know, this is what. We're now running on, this is the 10th episode. If we start at zero, work our way up to number nine. This is tenth, the 10th episode. Um, and I had uh, quite a bit of, uh, of uh, uh, things that went wrong with this episode. I've actually tried to start it like two or three different times uh, when I was interviewing Gordon. Uh, I had batteries conk out. I use a, uh, uh, a digital recorder uh, for the interviews, uh, most of the interviews that I've done. I've done through an, a digital recorder, and uh, uh, the batteries conked out. You know, I had like a backup pair. I thought I had everything set up um, when I was interviewing Gordon, and it just did not work out, and I ended up, you know, scrounging around, you know, going down to uh, the hotel lobby where we were staying. They didn't have any batteries. I went to a I went to a, a nearby gas station. They didn't have any batteries. I ended up finally getting into the, the, the trunk of my car and remembering that I had a, uh, a camera that I use for uh, uh, some of my uh, commissioning work and a uh, flashlight. So I was able to scrounge together those. 
the the one set of batteries that I put in there, nothing happened. My my recorder didn't even turn on the second half. Um, and finally, the the last set of batteries I put in the uh, the digital recorder. Um, finally, those those lasted the the extra forty five minutes that I needed to finish off this interview. So, but um, it's not always easy doing what I do. But I just have to kind of. Uh, uh, share that with you because i thought that was it was rather humorous that uh oh man i you know to have the you know the ashray president there and go oh you know hold on wait a minute i you know i'm a dunce i i, I didn't bring enough sets of batteries and that that uh that i have to kind of leave you for you know 15 20 minutes while i go go search uh traipsing around uh trying to find some uh batteries that'll actually work so i'd just like to thank everybody for listening I uh, really appreciate you, and I think we're doing some great things. We're going to have some great interviews uh, coming up now and in the future. If you have any comments or want to give me some feedback, uh, we, you can send that uh, to me either at the blog at buildingx.co or you can email me at matt at buildingx.co. Uh, if you want to follow me on Twitter, my handle is buildingx. And we're on iTunes, so if you heard us on there uh, and you like the show, uh, why don't you go ahead and uh, uh, leave me some feedback there. Uh, I'd greatly appreciate that. Uh, if you did enjoy the show, why don't you share it with a friend? Send an email, send a link, uh, talk to them around the water cooler. Let them know that, uh, where we're at and how to listen to us. So, until next time, remember, know what you build and share what you know.